Here we are now in chapter 10. Quite honestly, we are in the very heart of, of this book. In fact, today we'll, we'll cross over the halfway point in this, in this book. And I, I do wish to my soul that I could just get everything that we've studied over the last year and just get it into the mind of every person here so that we could all be working off of the same page. And obviously we can't take a year's worth of, of teaching and do that in, in a fashion and move anywhere down the road. But just a, a few things that you might want to remind yourself of, and, and you folks who are, have been here for the last year. Would you listen to me right now? If in this little part where we try to pull in all of our guests with us so that they can understand what we're talking about when we come to the passage for this morning, if you'll listen during this time, what will begin to happen for you is you'll be, begin to be able to take the book of Revelation and just begin to, just like I'm going to do, just break the thing down. And, and you need to get to that point to where this book is, is not just a bunch of you know, jumbled uh, teaching, but where you understand, okay, this is what's going on here, this is what's going on here. So let's just, you, you be thinking with me. See if you can do this already. And you folks who are guests, this will help you understand where we are. And we've come through in the book of Revelation already. We've come through the church age. Now, we're presently living in that period of time. We are living right now, as far as God is concerned, in a period of time that is called the church age. That is, that he is carrying out his plan right now on this planet through this weird thing that he calls a church. It's not a a building like this. It's It's a group of people. We are living in the seventh and final of those periods uh, laid out for us in in Revelation chapters 2 and 3. Then we've also come through the rapture of the church. That is that time that we're anticipating right now. This period of church history is going to conclude with an event that is called the rapture. And, okay, hi, glad to have you. We've come through... Church history now, we're looking for that event that is called the rapture of the church. It's when the people that know Christ on this planet are bodily removed from this planet to go into the presence of the Lord. And we've seen that in chapters 4 and 5. And then when we came to chapter 6, we really entered into the heart of the book. The heart of the book of, the Re- of Revelation is all about the tribulation period. The tribulation period takes us from Revelation chapter 6 all the way to chapter 19. Now, now he, takes, he takes two chapters to bring you through 2,000 years of church history. Then he's going to take chapter 6 through eight, or 19 to take you through a seven-year period. I mean, this is, this is an incredible period of time. We say this so often because Jesus said about this period... There has never been a time like this period. There'll never be a time like it after. And so he takes all of these chapters in the very heart of this book to bring us through the book of tri- uh, the, the, the tribulation period. And what he does in these chapters is he brings us four times through the tribulation period. And this is where a lot of people get themselves messed up in trying to understand the book of Revelation. What they do is they come to the tribulation period in chapter 6, and nobody questions whether or not we've entered the tribulation period there in chapter 6. But what people want to do is think like an American and come to this book and just line out chapter after chapter like all of these things are happening in a sequence. 
What we find is actually happening here is our Lord is bringing us through the tribulation period four different times from four different perspectives. A lot of people choke all over that, but they don't choke over the fact that the Lord gave us in the Word of God four different accounts of His first coming and what we call the Gospels. It covers the same exact period of ground. It's just coming from four different perspectives, and that's exactly what He's doing in Revelation chapter 6 through 19. He's bringing us through the tribulation period, which is that seven-year period of God's judgment and God's wrath, which culminates with the second coming of Christ to this planet. And he is giving to us four different accounts of his second coming to this planet. And so what we have seen thus far, we've come through the tribulation period for the first time. We came through that in chapter 6, through the figure of seals that were opened. Now remember what happened in chapter 7? We came through the tribulation period through those opening of the six seals, and what was chapter 7? It was a parenthesis. It was talking about some, something that was going on during the opening of those six seals in chapter 6. Okay, now we're coming through the second time through the tribulation period. This time we're coming through the figure of trumpets that were sounded by seven angels. Now we've come through six of those already. Now we come to chapter 10, and chapter 10 is a parenthesis. Okay, now and make sure you get this in your mind. Chapter 10 is to the seven trumpets what chapter 7 was to the seven seals. It's a parenthesis. It's not taking us any further down the road. It's just talking about, we, we, last week we came through that sixth, the sounding of the sixth trumpet. And now he's just taking a little bit of time to tell you some other things. It's not moving us any further down the road. We're going to find that that seventh trumpet doesn't actually sound until chapter 11 and verse 15. So all of chapter 10 that we're dealing with is a parenthesis. And let me just give you a brief overview of where we're going over the next several weeks. You can see it on your study sheet there. This morning, we're going to cover chapter 10, the completion of the mystery. It's a mystery that he talks about here that is going to come to completion. And then next, in chapter 11, verses 1 through 14, we're going to see the coming of the messengers. And of course, this is going to be the, the two witnesses that everybody loses their neck on. And then the crowning of the Messiah, in chapter 11, verses 15 through 19. And now this morning, let's go ahead and get started here in chapter 10 with the completion of the mystery. The completion of the mystery. And the first thing that we encounter here, letter A on your outline, is the mysterious angel. The mysterious angel. There's a, an angel that shows up in verse 1 that is, quite honestly, just somewhat mysterious. And the reason that this angel is mysterious is that John doesn't specifically identify him. Look at verse 1. Verse 1 says, I saw another mighty angel come down from heaven. But it's not like John you know, tells us here, then I saw the mighty angel Gabriel, or then I saw the mighty angel Michael. He, he simply says, another mighty angel. But what we'll see here is that as John begins to give us a description of him, 
I think it becomes pretty obvious just who this, quote, angel actually is. And first of all, John gives to us a description of his character. His character. Look at verse 1. Now, as we read this, I want, you to, I want you to think with me, and I want you to see if you can identify this mysterious angel. John says in verse 1, And I saw another mighty angel come down from heaven, clothed with a cloud, and a rainbow was upon his head, and his face was as it were the sun, and his feet as pillars of fire. And he had in his hand a little book open, and he set his right foot upon the sea and his left foot on the earth, cried with a loud voice as when a lion roared. Okay, now, you just run that through the computer of your mind one time, and you just tell me, who do you think this is? Now, quite honestly, what throws a lot of people in, in properly identifying here, here is the fact that verse 1 says that it is an angel. Okay, but now what I want you to do for just a second, I want you to just forget that it's an angel that's being talked about here. And I'm going to give you right now, I'm going to give you a sevenfold description of somebody in the Bible who, first of all, comes down from heaven, who is mighty, and he has, he's clothed with a cloud. He has the face as, like the sun. He, he has feet like pillars of fire, and they take the position of ownership over the land and the sea. And he's holding an authoritative little book that is open in his hand. And when he speaks, it sounds like the roar of a lion. Okay. Now, who might that be in your mind? Talk to me. That's Jesus Christ, right? I mean, you've got right there in these verses a perfect description of the Lord Jesus Christ. You say, but yeah, but, but it does say that he's an angel. Okay, why doesn't it just say that he saw the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, you'll remember that back in the Old Testament, during that period of time when God was dealing primarily with the nation of Israel, when the Lord Jesus Christ showed up in the Old Testament during that period of time, how was he identified? He was identified as the angel of the Lord. The angel of Jehovah. Listen to Isaiah chapter 63 and verse 9. Now, it's referring to jo Jehovah here, how he dealt with the nation of Israel. And listen to it. In all their affliction, he was afflicted. Listen. And the angel of his presence saved them. I wonder who that angel might have been that saved them. In his love and in his pity, he redeemed them and bare them and carried them all the days of old. That was the angel of his presence. It was the angel of of the Lord it was the angel of Jehovah it was the Lord Jesus Christ so it shouldn't be too surprising to us then that that's how John would describe him when once again we're in the tribulation period at a period of time on this planet when God once again is dealing primarily with the nation of Israel when John refers to him here he refers to him as a mighty angel the angel of the Lord. But notice how John describes him at the first part of verse 1. He says, I saw another mighty angel. Now, if you're thinking right now, if this is the Lord Jesus Christ that he's actually referring to, 
Now the question in my mind is, to which other angel would John liken the Lord Jesus Christ? I mean, he stands apart, right? There's none like the Lord Jesus Christ, and if he's just, if he's just another mighty angel, then boy, he's not quite as mighty as we thought he was, right? So what angel, what other angel would it be that John would liken the Lord Jesus Christ to? Well, th there were two other occasions when John referred in this book to an angel that by the duty that we see the angel actually perform, it would lead you to believe that he was referring once again to the angel of the Lord. L look back in chapter 7. And in verse 1 of chapter 7, you'll re remember that after the opening of the sixth seal, John says, After these things I saw four angels standing on the four corners of the earth, holding the four winds of the earth, that the wind should not blow on the earth, nor on the sea, nor on any tree. And then watch what he says in verse 2. And I saw another angel ascending from the east. Ascending from the east, having the seal of the living God. And it's apparent that this angel is of higher rank than these four because you'll notice that he is the one who determines when the actual winds of God's judgment will blow. And who might this, this angel be that ascends out of the east? Malachi chapter 4 and verse 2 says that the Lord Jesus Christ is going to arise out of the east as the what? As the sun. And who might this angel be who holds the power of God's judgment and determines when it will be loosed on this planet? John 5.22 says that the Father has committed all judgment unto the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And here in Revelation chapter 7 and verse 2, we see the angel of the Lord. We see the Lord Jesus Christ in his role as a prophet. And then go over to chapter 8. And you'll remember in chapter 8 that John was describing the things taking place at the golden altar in heaven, the altar of incense. And watch what he says in chapter 8 and verse 3. And another angel came and stood at the altar, having a golden censer. And there was given unto him much incense that he should offer it with the prayers of all saints upon the golden altar which was before the throne. And the smoke of the incense which came up with the prayers of the saints ascended up before God out of the angel's hand. And the angel took the censer and filled it with fire of the altar and cast it unto the earth. And there were voices and thunderings and lightnings and an earthquake. And again, who might this angel be, listen, who serves as an intercessor for the prayers of the saints before the throne of God. Romans chapter 8 and verse 34 says that it is Christ that died, yea rather, that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also maketh, what? Intercession for us. Paul adds in Hebrews chapter 7 and verse 25 that Christ ever liveth to make intercession for those of us that come unto God by Him. And here in chapter 8, we see 
the Lord Jesus Christ as the angel of the Lord in his role as a priest. Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 14 says that we have a great high priest that is passed into the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. So, we've seen the angel of the Lord as a prophet. We've seen the angel of the Lord as a priest. And now in chapter 10, how might you expect to see the angel of the Lord in his role as a what? As a king. And of course, that was the threefold ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ, that he would be a prophet. Like unto Moses, he would be a priest, our great high priest, and he would be the king, the king of kings and lord of lords. And as John describes him here, he describes his character as that of a king. Because notice, first of all, his clothing. His clothing. Verse 1 says, he is clothed with a cloud. Now, now listen. If you're just wondering if this is just... An angel, I want you to know something. Nowhere in all the Word of God is an angel ever clothed with a cloud. But we've seen already in our study, back in Revelation chapter 1 and verse 7, you can look at it if, if you like. Revelation chapter 1 and verse 7, look, look at what it says. Behold, He, the Lord Jesus Christ, behold, He cometh, with clouds. And folks, this is something that is consistent all the way through the Bible, that when Jesus Christ comes back to this planet as the King of Kings, He's going to come clothed with a cloud. And I mean, it, you can just take your Bible and wear yourself out with this. Uh, the prophets just nail it. Isaiah said in Isaiah chapter 19 and verse 1, Behold, the Lord rideth upon a swift cloud, Jeremiah said in Jeremiah 4.13, Behold, he shall come up as clouds, and his chariots shall be as a whirlwind. Ezekiel saw his second coming and said in Ezekiel 1.4, And I looked, and behold, a whirlwind came out of the north, a great cloud. Daniel said in Daniel 7.13, I saw the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man came with the clouds of heaven. In Joel chapter 2, in verse 2, Joel called it a day of darkness and, and of gloominess, a day of clouds and of thick darkness. And what you begin to see as you begin to trace clouds through the Bible, you begin to see that clouds are very significant because what clouds actually are in the Bible are the clothing of God's glory. And that's just, again, it's consistent all the way through the book, Ezekiel chapter 10 and verse 4. It says, Then, listen to it, Then the glory of the Lord went up from the cherub and stood over the threshold of the house, and the house was filled with the cloud, and the court was full of the brightness of the Lord's glory. In Second Chronicles chapter 5, Solomon had just completed the building of the temple, and, and the priests go in, and, and, and they placed the Ark of the Covenant in the holy place. And all at once, the, the Levites just bust into a song and the musicians are playing. And it says in verses 13 and 14 of Second Chronicles chapter 5, It came even to pass as the trumpeters and singers were as one to make one sound to be heard in praising and thanking the Lord. 
And when they lifted up their voice with the trumpets and cymbals and instruments of music and praised the Lord, saying, For he is good, for his mercy endureth forever, then the house was filled with a cloud, even the house of the Lord, so that the priest could not stand to minister by reason of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord had filled the house of God. In Exodus chapter 40 and verse 35, it says, And Moses was not able to enter into the tent of the congregation because the cloud abode thereon, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And do you remember how that in eternity past, Lucifer coveted the glory that was God's alone, and in his heart he he lifted up the five I wills. And do you remember what he said in Isaiah chapter 14 and verse 14? He said, I will ascend into the heights of the what? Of the clouds. And again, what you see consistent through the Bible is that the clouds are the clothing of his glory. And that's why according to Exodus chapter 13, verse 21, when God called the children of Israel out of bondage, he marched before him all the way through the desert, having wrapped himself in a what? In a cloud. According to Leviticus chapter 16 and verse 2, when Israel pitched the, the tabernacle in, in the wilderness, and again, the tabernacle was where God wanted to meet with his people. And in that tabernacle, God enthroned himself draped in a cloud upon the mercy seat. And in Acts chapter 1, verse 9, Jesus gathered together with his disciples there. And this is, of course, after his death, after his burial, after his resurrection. And, and what he's doing here is he's, he's he got the disciples before and he's giving his disciples their final teaching and, and commissioning. And when he was all finished, he stepped from off the Mount of Olives and he climbed the sky to glory once again, wrapped in a glorious cloud. And here are the disciples, they're watching this whole thing, and they're, they're, they're standing there literally with their mouths gaping open, and there's two angels that are standing there, and they, they say to them, Why stand ye gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus, which was taken up from you into heaven, shall so come in like manner. How did he go? He went in a cloud, and he says, Listen, when you see him again, he's coming just like that. He's going to be coming clothed with a cloud and so folks listen once you've seen that how else would you expect to see the Lord Jesus Christ and who else would God ever clothe with a cloud of glory his very glory of course this is the Lord Jesus Christ the King in all of his glory and check out the crown that he's wearing his crown next John says in a rainbow was upon his head and the rainbow was upon his head. And John saw that rainbow back in chapter 4, in verse 3, when he first saw the Lord upon his throne. There was a rainbow then. You'll remember when Ezekiel was caught up into heaven and he saw the king of kings in all of his glory upon his throne in Ezekiel chapter 1, verses 27 and 28. You remember what he said? He said, I saw the appearance of fire and it had brightness roundabout as the appearance of the bow that is in the cloud in the day of rain 
so was the appearance of the brightness round about. This was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. What we see here is the king wears a crown of glory upon his head, and both Ezekiel and John saw exactly the same thing. They saw a rainbow. And of course, you remember, turn back to Genesis chapter 9, you remember the first mention of rainbows in the Bible? Genesis chapter 9. And of course, Genesis 9 is the account of God judging the, the sin of the earth with a universal flood. And when Noah and his sons get off of the ark, verse 8 says, And God spoke unto Noah and to his sons with him, saying, And I, behold, I establish my covenant with you and with your seed after you. And with every living creature that is with you, of the, fowl of, the uh, of the fowl of the cattle and of every beast of the earth with you, from all that go out of the ark to every beast of the earth, and I will establish my covenant with you. Neither shall all flesh be cut off any more by the waters of a flood. Neither shall any more be a flood uh, to destroy the earth. God says, this is the token of the covenant which I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for perpetual generations. I, here it is. Here's this covenant. Here's the token of the covenant I'm making with you. I do set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be for a token of a covenant between me and the earth. And it shall come to pass when I bring a cloud over the earth that the bow shall be seen in the cloud. And I will remember my covenant, which is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the water shall no more become a flood to destroy all flesh. And the bow shall be in the cloud, and I will look upon it. I may remember the everlasting covenant between God and every, every living creature of all flesh that is upon the earth. And folks, what we find here is that the rainbow is the symbol of divine mercy in the midst of divine judgment. In Genesis chapter 9, initially, God hung that rainbow in the sky to be the reminder of his mercy in the midst of judgment but now in Revelation chapter 10 he wears that reminder on his head back in Revelation chapter 10 check it out man here is the Lord and he's ready to pour out his judgment and his wrath upon the earth and upon his very head is the reminder of the covenant of his mercy, his grace, and forgiveness in the form of a rainbow. And next, John sees his countenance. His countenance. He says in verse 1, And his face was, as it were, the sun. And by comparing Scripture with, with Scripture, it, I mean, listen, this can be nobody other than the Lord Jesus Christ. Back when John saw the Lord back in chapter 1, and go back there again, chapter 1, look at verse 16. You know what? He saw him there and he said exactly the same thing. He says, look at the end of the verse, and his countenance was as the sun shineth in his strength. 
We've already mentioned Malachi chapter 4 and verse 2 this morning where Jesus is referred to as the Son, the capital S, you in the Son of righteousness who will arise on the planet. And check this out in Matthew chapter 17. You don't need to go there. But Jesus takes Peter, James, and John, the scripture says, up into a high mountain. Now, in the verse previous to chapter 17, chapter 16 and verse 27, what it says is that he was going to do this for the purpose of showing these three men the glory that will be his when he comes at his second coming. And what takes place in Matthew chapter 17 is he takes these three men, Peter, James, and John, up into this high mountain, and chapter 17 and verse 2 says that he was, what's the word? He was transfigured before them. Now don't let that freak you out. You know what, you know what, you know what they saw, guys? They saw the figure of his person transformed. He was transfigured. You know what was going on there? Here is Jesus. And he came to this planet, folks, as the glory of God. The Shekinah glow and glory of God. But who he was was veiled by a body of flesh and blood. And what he does is he takes these men up into this high mountain, and what he does right before their very eyes is he rolls his flesh back to reveal who he actually is, who he actually was. And Matthew chapter 17 and verse 2 says, And his face did shine as the sun. And you know what? It's the same exact way that John sees him here. And you get the picture. You've got this cloud. And God says when the sun passes through that cloud, it's going to form a rainbow. And you've got God just pulling together all of the pieces. All the way back in Genesis chapter 9, he says, I'm going to do all this, but I'm just going to paint a picture of my glorious sun who's going to come clothed with the clouds. His face will shine like the sun. And when it does, there'll be a rainbow upon his head that will remind me of my mercy, my grace, and my forgiveness. And then next, John shows us the symbol of his conquest. His conquest. He, he says at the end of verse 1, And his feet were as pillars of fire. And again, John showed us the same symbol back in chapter 1, in verse 15, when he said, And his feet were like unto fine brass, as if they burned in a furnace. Fire in the Bible, of course, is a picture of judgment, and, and feet, particularly feet as pillars, a picture of conquest, of somebody conquering, of somebody taking possession, somebody taking dominion. What he's seeing here is Jesus Christ as a conquering king, which really leads us to the next key thing that lets us know who this mysterious angel actually is as if we didn't already know from his character, next he shows us his claim. His claim. Now, now we just saw, now, 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 man, grab a hold of this. This is just so smooth, the way that God lays out this book, folks. He has feet as pillars of fire, 
And, and notice where those feet are. Verse 2 says, And he had in his hand a little book open. We'll talk about that in just a second. But now here it is. And he set his right foot upon the sea. Now remember, it's a, it's a foot as a pillar of fire. And here comes this <clears throat> mighty foot. Some of y'all got some mighty feet too, I might say. But this is, this is an incredible foot. This is God's foot. And that foot comes down. And he says, his right foot came upon the sea. And his left foot on the earth. And drop down to verse 5, And the angel which I saw stand upon the sea and upon the earth, lifted up his hand to heaven, and swear by him that liveth forever and ever, who created heaven and the things that are therein, the earth and the things that are there, therein are, and the sea and the things which are therein, that there should be no time no longer. But in the days of the voice of the seventh angel, when he shall begin to sound, the mystery of God should be finished, as he hath declared to his servants, the prophets and folks what's happening here is Jesus is making his claim that he is the one that has the right to rule over the earth now back in chapter 5 that claim has already been acknowledged in heaven now here in chapter 10 it's being asserted on the earth and he's claiming dominion right now over the whole world now uh, again we're going to talk in detail about this mysterious little book that he's holding in his hand in verse 2 we're going to talk about it in detail in a, in a few minutes but you'll remember now, now think remember when we were back in chapter 5 the father pulled out a seven sealed book remember now that that book was sealed it was closed. What was that book, y'all? Somebody? It was the title deed to the earth. And you remember what happened in chapter 5? The search was made throughout all of, of heaven for one who would be worthy to come and take the book out of the Father's hand and open it and remove the, the, the seals and claim the possession of the earth and there goes this period of absolute silence and John says oh my goodness man I started freaking out he said I started weeping because nobody was found who was worthy to open the book and to remove the seals but you remember what happened all of a sudden buddy the Lord Jesus Christ stands up on that throne he stands up as the lion of the tribe of Judah he stands to his feet and he took the book and he begins to remove the seals and what did he do he opened it as the rightful heir to the earth and I believe in chapter 10 here this this little book that is open is this book that we've already seen him open thus far in our study of the book of Revelation. He's, he's holding this, this book in his hand in chapter 10 and verse 2, and, and, and check out the position that he takes. Verse 2 says, And he set his right foot upon the sea, and his left foot on the earth. And if you don't already know this, in the Old Testament, the way of claiming ownership of a piece of property is that a man would ceremoniously 
walked through that land with his shoes on. That's the way that God laid this thing out. And that's why in Genesis chapter 13 and verse 17, when God was laying out the dimensions for the promised land, you know what he told Abraham? Genesis 13, 17. Arise, listen, walk through the land in the length of it and in the breadth of it, for I will give it unto thee. That's why he told Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 11 and verse 24, Every place whereon the soles of your feet shall tread shall be yours. That's why he told Joshua in Joshua 1.3, Every place that the sole of your foot shall tread upon, that have I given unto you. Do you get the picture? This was God's way of claiming ownership. And do you see what the Lord is the Lord Jesus Christ is actually doing here in verse 2? Check it out. He very deliberately sets his right foot upon the sea and his left foot upon the earth. And by doing so, you know what he's doing? He is announcing that he intends to take them and possess them for his own. And folks, for the last 6,000 years, Satan has been the god of this what? He's been the god of this world. And it happened 6,000 years ago when, when Adam yielded to Satan in the garden. And, and listen, for the last 6,000 years of human history, the land and the sea have been under the control of God's enemies. And what we're seeing here is that at this point in the tribulation period, Jesus says, that's it. And he takes those feet that are as pillars of fire, and he firmly plants them on his possession. Psalm 24 and verse 1 says, The earth is the Lord's, and the fullness thereof. The only problem is, is there's been a squatter on that possession for the last 6,000 years. But at this point, the rightful owner takes his possession. And he vows that it will be so. I love it. I mean, folks, this is the, uh, the most major facial that you have ever seen in your life. He puts those feet down, says, I'm taking this, and I vow that it's to be so. Look at verse 5. And the angel which I saw stand upon the sea and upon the earth lifted up his hand to heaven and swear by him that liveth forever and ever who created heaven and the things that are there therein are and the earth and the things that therein are and the sea and the things which are therein that there should be time no longer now listen a lot of people get all wigged out here and they say that well you know what oh my goodness I thought this was the Lord Jesus Christ through everything we've seen thus far but uh, but look at this verse this this angel he swears to the creator of heaven and the earth and we know that the creator of the heaven and the earth was the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Colossians chapter 1 and verse 16, For by him were uh, all things created that are in heaven and in earth. In John chapter 1 and verse 3, All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. And so they say, Oh my goodness, this must not be the Lord Jesus Christ then, because what that would mean then is that the Lord Jesus Christ would be swearing by his own name here. Amen. Have you ever read Hebrews chapter 6 
verses 13 to 17, what, what it says there, oh, this is, this is incredible. What, what it says is that when men want to establish the credibility of what they're going to say or what they're going to do, it says that they swear by something that is greater than themselves. So it says in Hebrews chapter 6 and verse 13 that that's why when God made promise to Abraham, because he could swear by no greater, you know what he did? He swore by himself. And that's exactly what the Lord Jesus Christ does here in verses 5 and 6. He places the soles of his feet, the object of his possession, and he holds in one hand the book that is the title deed of the earth, and he takes the position of oath-taking. He puts his hand up into heaven, and then he makes an oath by the name that is above every other name. His own. The name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the vow he's making is the promise, the, the, the promise that he's actually giving here is at the end of verse 6. Look at what it says. That there should be time no longer. Now, a lot of people, their, their attention span gets all wigged out here and you know they're, they're, they're coming along and they see, oh, and time should be no longer? And they forget what has just been said that's been leading up to this statement they forget what's being said right after this statement. Now, now listen real carefully here. He is not saying that at this point in the tribulation, time comes to an end here. Or time is no longer. Now, now listen, there is going to come that time. There will come a, a, a time when time will be non-existent. And we'll enter eternity. We're going to be like on God's time clock, which is no time clock. E eternity. But we're not going to get there until Revelation 21 and 22. What he's saying here is I'm taking possession of the earth and time's up. I'm, going to, I'm not going to drag this thing out any longer and, and I give you my word on it. I swear to you there shall be time no longer. I'm going to do it and I'm going to do it now. Verse 7, But in the days of the voice of the seventh angel when he shall begin to sound... The mystery of God should be finished as he hath declared to his servants the prophets. In other words, this seventh trumpet is about to sound now, and there isn't going to be any, any time that passes before this trumpet sounds. And when it does, the whole mystery is going to be completed. It's all going to be over. Now the question is, what is this mystery that he's talking about here in the middle of verse 7? Those of you who are students of the Bible know that there are seven mysteries that the New Testament talks about. In fact, that's one of the sections that we cover in our Discipleship 2 ministry. Many of you already know those things. Some of you are getting ready to move into that, that area of your, your walk with the Lord, Discipleship 2. But, but now listen, I don't think he's talking specifically about those seven mysteries in this verse. He identifies this mystery that he's talking about here at the end of verse 7 as a mystery that was declared to his servants, the prophets. You say, well, what, what mystery was, was that? Well, turn back with me, if you would, to the book of First Peter. Not real far from where you are here. <clears throat> the, the book of First Peter, 
chapter 1. And you'll notice that the end of verse 7 talks about the appearing of Jesus Christ, whom, verse 8, whom having not seen, ye love. Amen? And whom though now ye see him not, yet believing, ye rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, even the salvation of your souls. Now watch this. Of which salvation the prophets have inquired and searched diligently, who prophesied of the grace that should come unto you, searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ which was in them did signify when it testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glory that should follow. You know what, folks? Listen. The, prophesy, the, the prophets prophesied about the coming of the Lord. But there was something that they just could not reckon with. There was just something they just could not figure out. They could not figure out what was up with this thing of they saw him as a suffering servant on one hand, and they saw him as a conquering king on the other and they could not figure out how in the world could you do both of those. And you know what they didn't understand? They really didn't understand that his coming was in different advents. They, they didn't understand this 2,000 year gap that we understand now between his first coming as a suffering servant and his second coming to this planet as a conquering king. They, they just, they, they couldn't figure that out. You know what it was? It was a mystery to them. How does this whole thing work out? Now, now go back to, to Revelation 10. But at this point, in verse 7, the Lord is saying, the time clock has struck midnight. Okay? There is time no longer. That's it. The seventh and final trumpet is ready to sound. The tribulation period is about to come to an end, and the mystery of this time interval, it's going to be over. Because when that seventh trumpet sounds, the suffering servant is going to be the conquering king. And check that out in chapter 11. In verse 15... This is where that seventh trumpet actually sounds that he's talking about there in, in verse 7 of, of Revelation 10. It's about to sound right here in Revelation 11:15. Watch what happens. And the seventh angel sounded, and there were great voices in heaven saying, Bam! The kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And so the Lord makes his claim. And he says, listen, in the fullness of my glory, I'm coming to this planet as a king. And I'm going to come, and I'm going to be clothed with a cloud I'll have on my head, a rainbow. My countenance will shine as the sun, and I'll have the symbol of conquest. My legs are going to come down, and my right foot's going to be on the sea, and my left foot is going to be on this earth. And I'm going to make a vow to you that when I come like that, Bam! There's no more time. No more mystery. You don't ever have to worry about this 
poor little suffering servant, because that suffering servant has now come as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. There's no more time. The mystery has been completed. So our Lord makes his claim. He sets his right foot upon the sea, his left foot upon the earth. Verse 2 says, and notice next here, his cry in verse 3. His cry. He cried with a loud voice, check this out, as when a lion roareth. And folks, here he is, the holy lamb of God, fulfilling his role as the mighty lion of the tribe of Judah, just like the Bible said that he would. Listen listen to Proverbs 19 and verse 12. I love this. The king's wrath is as the roaring of a lion. Now that's a cute little proverb, and it's been true all through the centuries. The wrath of a king is as the roaring of a lion. But it's also a major picture to you. One of these days when Jesus Christ comes back to this planet as the king, in all of his wrath, it's going to be like the roaring of a lion. Isaiah 31 and verse 4 says, For thus hath the Lord spoken unto me, like as the lion, and the young lion roaring on his prey, when a multitude of shepherds is called forth against him, he will not be afraid of their voice, nor abase himself for the noise of them. So shall the Lord of hosts come down to fight for Zion. And buddy, there's coming a day when all of the armies of the world and all these demons are going to be there at the Battle of Armageddon. And there's going to be a whole bunch of noise, and that's all it's going to be to the Lord. It's just a bunch of noise. And he's going to come back and he says, I'm not coming abased. I'm not coming wimped out. I'm coming back. And when I come, I'm coming roaring like a lion. Excuse me. In Isaiah 42 and verse 13. I love that, man. You guys get all charged up over Rocky and all that kind of stuff, man. You get charged up about something that's eternal. In Isaiah 42 and verse 13, he adds, The Lord shall go forth as a mighty man. He shall stir up jealousy like a man of war. Everybody's going to be going, oh my goodness. He shall cry, yea, roar. He shall prevail against his enemies. Jeremiah 25 and verse 30, The Lord shall roar from on high and utter His voice from His holy habitation. He shall mightily roar upon His habitation. He shall give a shout as they that tread the grapes against all the inhabitants of the earth. And you can check it out. When He comes again at the Battle of Armageddon, He's coming trampling out the grapes, buddy. And He's coming roaring. And you just see it prophesied of the Lord Jesus Christ over and over and over. When he comes, he'll shout, he will cry out with a loud voice, and just like John says here, it'll sound like the roar of a lion. All right, now that's the explanation of the mysterious angel. And I know some of you are nervous, that's the first point. The others come rather quickly once you see who that is. So we've seen his character. We've seen his claim, we've seen his cry, and that leads us to the next thing, the mysterious thunders. The mysterious thunders. John says in the middle of of verse 3, 
that, that something happened when the Lord did this thing we just talked about. When he cried with a, with a loud voice that went forth as a, a lion roaring. Look at what he says. And when he cried, seven thunders uttered their voices. And when the seven thunders had uttered their voices, I was about to write. And I heard a voice from heaven saying unto me, Seal up those things which the seven thunders uttered, and write them not. And you know what those seven thunders uttered, folks? I don't either. <laughs> and if anybody ever tells you that they know what they said, they're lying. Because it's a mystery. We don't know because they were sealed up. But, but notice just two quick things here. First of all, notice John's zeal. Notice John's zeal. Now, you remember back in chapter 1 and verse 11, that when the Lord brought John up into his presence to give him this revelation, what he told him is, John, I want you to take all of this, and I want you to write it in a book. Okay? That's why we've got it as this 66th book in our Bible, because John was told to write what he saw in a book. And now listen, John has very zealously been obedient to carry out this command. And listen, as soon as he hears these seven thunders, buddy, he, he picks up his pen and he says, and I was about to write in verse 4. Okay, and that, that was John's zeal. Watch next John's seal. John's seal. John says, I was about to write, and I heard a voice from heaven saying unto me, Seal up those things which the seven thunders uttered, and write them not. Now, as you can imagine, there's all kinds of speculation that goes on about these, these seven thunders. And, and, and we're not going to get caught up on this, but now listen real carefully. Most people try to tie these, these thunders here to the voice of the Lord that you see in Psalm 29. And the reason people make this connection is because, strangely enough, in Psalm 29, seven times in that little psalm, it says, the voice of the Lord. And in the whole thing there, it talks about the God of heaven thundereth. Okay, and you got this repeated phrase there, the, the voice of the Lord. Okay, and so what most people do, what they, they think is that if, if that's what these thunders were here, that they were the voice of the Lord, and then you take that, now listen, and you put it into the context of what the, the voice of the Lord thundered here in this passage, and obviously it had to do with his judgment and his wrath, and so they conclude that apparently what he said here, that what the voice of the Lord that was spoken at this point, what he said was just so absolutely horrific that the Lord didn't want John to, to reveal that thing, and so he, he sealed it. All right? now, and, and you know what? That may very well be what that, what, what's going on here. I, I, I don't know, but I'll just say this, that personally, I've got a little bit of a difficult time thinking that in the book of the Bible, that says in the very first, the first five words of this book, it says that what this book is, is the revelation of Jesus Christ. Yeah, that's five words, okay. It says that what this book is, is the revelation of Jesus Christ, 
Okay, now we're talking about a passage here, folks, that is the crowning moment of the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, if you're going to reveal something, I mean, what this whole thing is about is the, the Lord on His throne, the Lord taking His power, the Lord taking His, his dominion. And you see, I just have a hard time that in the book that is the revelation of Jesus Christ, that all of a sudden it's going to come to the moment. And he utters his voice, and it's, it's not going to be revealed. Now, just something that just sparks in me and says, well, I don't know. So let me just give you some food for thought. Okay, now, now track with me. You remember in verse 2, look at it here, chapter 10, verse 2. Remember that the Lord has just asserted his right to the possession of, of earth. And in verse 3, he roars out that claim with his voice. And now notice in verse 3 here that these seven thunders uttered their voice in response to the roar of the Lord's voice. And when he had cried, here comes the response, seven thunders uttered their voices. Okay, now could it be that these seven thunders actually came from the one who for the last 6,000 years has acted as the God of this world and for the last 6,000 years, the Bible says, he has been walking about on this planet himself as a, as a what? A roaring lion and could it be that what these seven thunders actually are is Satan's violent reaction to the Lord's claim? And John hears it, and oh my goodness, he's about to record it, and God says to him, Hey, John, don't, don't even write that. What, that. what that imp says isn't important. Don't even waste your time and energy writing it, much less the paper and ink, buddy. And, and besides, John, I want to remind you, this is the revelation of my glorious Son, and the devil has been opposing that since Ezekiel chapter 28, and I'm not going to give him the satisfaction of even getting his voice into this revelation. So, John, don't write it. I want that thing sealed. Just chew on that. Again, I'm not claiming infallibility. If you don't like that, that's fine. You know what? It's just some food for thought. But I'll tell you what, it just fits this whole passage a whole lot better for me. All right, then look at one final thing. The mysterious book. Now, we've already identified this little open book back in, back in verse 2. It's the book that our Lord took out of the hand of the Father in chapter 5, that book that he opened in chapter 6, that book that is, as we've already said, the title deed of the earth. So what's mysterious about this book is not what this book actually is. What's mysterious is what the Lord says to John about it and what he tells John to do with it. Notice, first of all, that he says concerning this book that it is to be personally experienced in the life. It is to be personally experienced in the life. And he shows this here, and shows us this in several ways here. Look at verse 8. And the voice which I heard from heaven spake unto me 
again. Okay, now that was the, the same voice that he's talking about here that spoke to him and what we were just looking at in verse 4 that told him to seal up what the seven thunders had uttered. It's the voice of the Father. And he said, here's what the voice said, Go and take the little book which is open in the hand of the angel which standeth upon the sea and upon the earth. Go and take that little book out of his hand. Now, now folks, I'm just going to tell you that if I'm, if I'm John and here I'm, I'm seeing the Lord Jesus Christ as we've already talked about and I'm seeing him in all of his glory, clothed with a cloud, crowned with a rainbow, the countenance of the sun. He's holding, you know, he's holding this book in, in, in one hand. He's holding up the other, bowing that the time of his judgment has come. And he roars with the voice of a lion. I don't think that I'm going to walk up and try to get anything out of his hand. You know what I'm saying? I mean, you're going to be just like, oh, buddy, no way. But, you know, it's something interesting in the book of Revelation is that, just go back to chapter 1, I know we've gone back to chapter 1 quite a bit today, but might as well wear those pages out, you know. It's something interesting, back in chapter 1, when John first began to see and, and receive the revelation, you remember that what he saw here in chapter 1 was the risen and glorified Christ. And, and do you remember what his reaction was? It was the same reaction that any single one of us would have. Revelation 1.17 says, And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. I mean, he, he was absolutely scared out of his wits, folks. Just absolutely scared out of his wits. He's afraid to move. I mean, he's afraid to breathe. <laughs> I fell at his feet as dead. But John said, and he laid his right hand upon me. Some of y'all have been afraid in your life. You called upon the name of the Lord, and you know what he did? He took the right hand, the right hand of his power, and he placed that hand upon you, and you couldn't explain it for the life of you. But you know what? All the fear removed. And John says, man, that's, that's what happened to me. Here I am. I'm freaked totally out. I'm afraid to even breathe. And he laid his right hand upon me, and he said unto me, Fear not. And, and then check this out. From that moment on, John doesn't fear anything in this entire book of Revelation. He's not afraid of the cherubim. I'm just telling you. If I saw the cherubim in this room right now, I'd, I'd be hitting the deck. I'd be afraid to move and breathe with, with just that. Much less the glory of the Lord. He's not intimidated by the 24 angels. I mean, he sees the beast that rises up out of the sea having seven heads and ten horns and absolutely no fear. And you see, that's why as soon as the Father tells him in verse 8 to go and, and take the little book out of the hand of the Lord Jesus Christ, verse 9 says, And I went unto the angel, the angel of the Lord, and said unto him, Give me the little book. And he said unto me, Take it. And I want you to notice that this is the second time here that John is told to take it. Check it out. It wasn't handed to him. Even when he asked the angel, the angel of the Lord, even when he asked the Lord to give it to him, the answer is, take it. 
And the simple point here is that God is never going to force his revelation on you or on any person. He has it, and it's readily available. It's yours for the asking. It's yours for the taking. But when it finally comes down to it, you got to take it. Taking it is your responsibility. In other words, you've got to want it. The Lord does not have anybody that's saved that wasn't willing to be saved. The Lord doesn't have any messengers out there that weren't willing. He, he says, okay, take it. And, and so the Lord says, take it and, and watch this now. And eat it up. In, in other words, John, I, I don't want you to just have a bunch of information in your head. I want you to take this book, and I want you to take what you get, and I want you to chew on it. And I want you to digest it. And I want it to become a part of you. I want you to take this book in, John, and I want, I want you to let it minister to you before you go out and try to take it to minister to others. And you know, we're in a church here where we've got a lot of people who are involved in, in, the, in, in ministry. In this church, we call it the ministry of discipleship, and we got hundreds and hundreds of people that every week are giving out this little book. And you see, the point that he's trying to get us to see here is that your responsibility as a messenger isn't just to be a conduit of information. The Lord doesn't want you to just take in information and then spit it back out to others. You know what he wants you to do? He wants you to take it in, in your private devotions, in the, the preaching on Sunday morning, Sunday night. He wants you to take that information in, and he wants you to let that become a part of you. And as it becomes a part of you, then he wants you to share it with others, because he knows that the only truth that is ever really going to affect the lives of the people around you are those truths that you've taken into your being and they've become a, a part of your life and they're being lived out through your life. And that's the practical application of what he's telling John here. And you know what? That all sounds well and good. Oh yeah, that, that, I like that. I'll use that with my disciple. I'll tell you why. Yeah, we've got to make sure that we're applying all these things that we're taking in and, we're, you know, and, and we digest those. They become a part of our life. Yeah, I got all that down, but... But he says, now listen, there, there's something you better know about transferring that kind of information through your life. He says toward the end of verse 9 there, It shall make thy belly bitter, but it shall be in thy mouth sweet as honey. And John says, I took the little book out of the angel's hand and ate it up, and sure enough, it was in my mouth sweet as honey, and as soon as I had eaten it, my belly was bitter. And John found the principle to be true concerning this book that, that all of God's spokesmen, spokesmen have found all down through the centuries. And, and maybe you've already experienced what, what he's talking about here. You, you know how it is? You'll be, you'll be studying along, you know, in, in the morning. You'll be studying your Bible, man. And all of a sudden, baby, wham! I mean, you turn over this, this choice morsel, man. And you see that thing, and, and you say, oh, my goodness. And, oh, it, it tastes so good. 
And oh my goodness, it's so exciting and it's so thrilling. But, but then that exciting truth that was just so sweet, it was, oh my goodness, it was sweet as honey. And I, I mean, I was calling people up and I was telling them all of that. But then when that truth that you saw begins to settle down inside your being, you begin to see all of the ramifications of this thing. And then all of a sudden, you find that that exciting, thrilling truth is something that God wants to use to turn your very life inside out and upside down. And, and that wonderful truth you find is going to be very painful in the long haul. It's, in the words of John here, it's, it's wonderfully painful. Do you guys do you understand what I'm talking about? I know some of you certainly must. Something that came to my mind through all of this is, it's been several years ago now, we're going along in this church, we've just come through church history, and I felt like, you know, you've heard me tell the story, I felt like I was just in a, in a unique point of attack in my life, and just going through an incredible soul-searching time, and share that with the other pastors, and God's beginning to do the same thing in some of them, and we're talking about these things, and I've started preaching about it at the first of the year, and Frank picked up on it, and God was doing that same thing in him, and and you remember he, he, he came we, we, we came to a service, and, and he said, you know what, folks, is this, is, is this all that the Christian life is? You remember this? Is, this? is this all that we've got? Is this all that we, and we began to talk about, Frank started talking about the book of Joshua. And, and all the things that were in the book of Joshua and how the Lord Jesus Christ is our Joshua to lead us into the promised land of victory. And remember how sweet that was? Oh my goodness, this is wonderful. You mean there is a book of the Bible that is going to show us how our Joshua can take us into the promised land of victor victorious Christian life? And oh, buddy, man, that tastes great. Oh, that's exciting. And then all of a sudden we get moving down the road and we find out Oh my goodness, man, there's, there's giants to deal with. There's sins of the Father to deal with. There's rivers to cross. There's enemies to fight, not the least of which is self. It, you, you know what I'm talking about now? Oh, it's exciting! Yeah, the Lord's our Joshua! And he's going to lead us into the promised land of victorious Christian living! And then we find out, oh my goodness... This is, this is incredible. This is bitter in my belly. I didn't know it was going to cost me so much. Jeremiah learned it in Jeremiah 15, verses 16 through 18. He said, listen to it, Thy words were found, and I did eat them. And thy word was unto me the joy and rejoicing of mine heart. He says in the very next verse, I sat not in the assembly of the mockers, nor rejoiced. I sat alone because of thy hand, for thou hast filled me with indignation. Oh, this tastes great! But, whoa, man, this is so tough to live. Ezekiel 
said the same thing. We don't have the time to go there right now. But it's the same exact thing. Ezekiel sees the, the roll, the roll, the scroll, the Word of God. And God says, listen, I want you to eat this thing. And, and he says the same exact thing. Oh, man, I ate it. and whoo, It was sweeter than honey. Loved it. But oh, buddy, started to see the ramifications of, of this thing. And, 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 and check it out. Haven't you already found that to be true with this little book that is disclosing to us Jesus Christ coming as the King of Kings? I mean, boy, here, here we are. We're coming in here every single week, man. And you know what? This is the coolest thing in the world, isn't it? We're understanding the book of Revelation. I didn't think I'd ever understand this book. You mean, that's what this means? Wow, that's so cool! And then all of a sudden, as we're beginning to find out what this stuff really means, we find out that it also means that the people that are in our family that we love with all of our hearts are going to go through all of this stuff. We go to our family gatherings now and we see all of our, our family and it's great to be with them, isn't it? But there's a bitterness in our soul because now we look at them and we don't just see them as this is a cool family. What we begin to do is we see their lostness. We see their souls. And we grieve because it's, it's bitterness. And we go to work and we see these guys and we used to be able to laugh around and have a good time. And, and, and now, because of the, the sweet stuff that we're learning from the book of Revelation and, and all that it's going to mean when the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords finally gets the glory and, oh man, that's so sweet it is. And I'm telling you, you rejoice and yet... Goodness, this is going to be so devastating to the people of this planet. We go to the grocery store, and all of a sudden, this person that's checking us out, it's not just, this is somebody checking me out. We're, we're, we're seeing, oh my goodness, man, the things we just talked about last Sunday are going to be lived out in this person's life unless somebody can, can, can give them the, 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 the truth. And we go, go to ball games, and we're just... From the bitterness in our soul, we're just crying out and we're saying, Oh God, would you open doors of utterance for us? To be able to reach these people. And you see, folks, now, now listen. If you're experiencing that, you're right where you need to be in this study of the book of Revelation. But if right now you don't know what I'm talking about, you know what you need to do? Stop tasting it. And eat it up. And let it get down into the fabric of your very being to where you digested it to the point to where it's become bitter in your belly. It's that wonderful pain. Oh man, we want the Lord to come now, but... But could you wait just a little bit longer until I can witness to my parents? 
And you see, that's the way that this book is. That's the way this thing is, is supposed to work. This, this prophecy, it, it, it's, it's supposed to gladden you and at the same time sadden you. It, it's, it's supposed to bring you great joy and yet great grief. It, it's supposed to be wonderful and yet horrible. It's, it's supposed to be sweet. And yet it's supposed to be bitter. And if that's going to happen first, it must be personally experienced in the life. And then second, it must be publicly expressed to the lost. It must be publicly expressed to the lost. In verse 11, John says, And he said unto me, Thou must prophesy again before many peoples and nations and tongues and kings. And now, now listen, we're almost through. Now don't pack up, but just listen. Make sure you get the, this, this passage. He says, you've still got some work, John. You still must prophesy again before many peoples and nations and tongues and kings. And, and you know what? Through the remaining parts of the book of Revelation, John did just that. All through the centuries. He's been prophesying before many people and tongues and kindreds. I mean, this teaching has gone to every continent in the world. And folks, here we are this morning, almost 2,000 years later, we're holding this very prophecy in our hands. And John is still prophesying before many peoples and tongues and, 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 and nations. Why? You know why? Because he took God's truth in and he digested it. And what God did is he gave him a worldwide ministry. Many peoples, nations, tongues, and kings. And, and listen, I'm telling you what I wish would happen in my life, what I wish would happen in this church is that we would be so hungry to learn the book of Revelation, but listen, not to satisfy our intellectual curiosities about all the ins and outs of this book, but so that we'd learn it in the sweetness of the, the blessed hope that we have in, in our soon coming King would just fill our mouth, and every single day we would pray, Oh Lord, I pray that Your kingdom would come. And while we're praying that with rejoicing and tears of joy falling down our face, that those same tears of joy will turn into tears of grief for the people that are still on this planet who don't even have a clue about John 3.16 much less the book of Revelation and what I what I wish God would do in us what I pray that he'll do in us is that he'll take the study of the book of Revelation and we won't be like a bunch of little kids just waiting to find out what the next thing means but that we'll learn it and we'll fully understand what it means will digest it for that it becomes bitter in our soul. And you know what I believe God will do? 
I believe He'll give us the same ministry that we see here in verse 11. I believe He'll give us a ministry in these last days to many peoples, many nations, many tongues, and people from every walk of life. Let's pray. And now, Lord, I do pray that we would take your words and we'd eat them. And may we know the blessedness of the return of Christ when you finally get the glory. May that be as honey in our mouth. But, oh, Lord, help us to fully digest that truth so that it becomes that bitterness in our belly that causes us to have a passion for the peoples and nations and tongues and kings of this world. Would you please help us, like John, to have the opportunity to speak to them, open doors of utterance for us to be able to proclaim the message of who you are to this world. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.